Section 10 of Billy Budd by Herman Melville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Scientific Methodist. Chapter 22 The night so luminous on the spar deck, otherwise on the cavernous ones below, level so like the tiered galleries in a coal mine, passed away. Like the prophet in the chariot disappearing in heaven and dropping his mantle to Elisha, the withdrawing night transferred its pale robe to the peeping day. A meek, shy light appeared in the east, where stretched a diaphanous fleece of white furrowed vapor. That light slowly waxed. Suddenly one bell was struck aft, responded to by one louder metallic stroke from forward. It was four o'clock in the morning. Instantly the silver whistles were heard summoning all hands to witness punishment. Up through the great hatchway, rimmed with racks of heavy shot, the watch below came pouring, overspreading with the watch already on deck the space between the mainmast and foremast, including that occupied by the capacious launch and the black booms tiered on either side of it, boat and booms making a summit of observation for the powder boys and younger tars. A different group comprising one watch of topmen leaned over the side of the rail of that sea balcony, no small one in a 74, looking down on the crowd below. Man or boy, none spake but in whispers, and few spake at all. Captain Veer, as before, the central figure among the assembled commissioned officers, stood nigh the break of the poop deck, facing forward. Just below him on the quarter-deck the marines in full equipment were drawn up much as at the scene of the promulgated sentence. At sea in the old time, the execution by halter of a military sailor was generally from the foreyard. In the present instance, for special reasons, the main yard was assigned. Under an arm of that yard the prisoner was presently brought up, the chaplain attending him. It was noted at the time, and remarked upon afterwards, that in this final scene the good man evinced little or nothing of the perfunctory. Brief speech indeed he had with the condemned one, but the genuine gospel was less on his tongue than in his aspect and manner toward him. The final preparations personal to the latter being speedily brought to an end by two boatswain's mates, the consummation impended. Billy stood facing aft. At the penultimate moment, his words, his only ones, words wholly unobstructed in the utterance, were these, God bless Captain Veer. Syllables so unanticipated coming from one with the ignominious hemp about his neck, a conventional felon's benediction directed aft toward the quarters of honor. Syllables, too, delivered in the clear melody of a singing bird on the point of launching from the twig, had a phenomenal effect, not unenhanced by the rare personal beauty of the young sailor, spiritualized now through late experiences so poignantly profound. Without volition, as it were, as if indeed the ship's populace were the vehicles of some vocal current electric, with one voice from a low and aloft came a resonant echo. God bless Captain Veer. And yet, at that instant, Billy alone must have been in their hearts, even as he was in their eyes. At the pronounced words and the spontaneous echo that voluminously rebounded them, Captain Veer, either through stoic self-control or a sort of momentary paralysis induced by emotional shock, stood erectly rigid as a musket in the ship armorer's rack. The hull, deliberately recovering from the periodic roll to leeward, was just regaining an even keel when the last signal, the preconcerted dumb one, was given. 
At the same moment it chanced that the vapory fleece hanging low in the east was shot through with a soft glory as of the fleece of the Lamb of God seen in mystical vision, and simultaneously therewith, watched by the wedged mass of upturned faces, Billy ascended, and ascending took the full rose of the dawn. In the pinioned figure, arrived at the yard end, to the wonder of all, no motion was apparent save that created by the slow roll of the hull, in moderate weather so majestic in a great ship heavy cannoned. A Digression When some days afterwards, in reference to the singularity just mentioned, the purser, a rather ruddy, rotund person, more accurate as an accountant than profound as a philosopher, said at mess to the surgeon, What testimony to the force lodged in willpower? The latter, spare and tall, one in whom a discreet causticity went along with a manner less genial than polite, replied, Your pardon, Mr. Purser? In a hanging scientifically conducted, and under special orders I myself directed how Bud's was to be effected, any movement following the completed suspension and originating in the body suspended, such movement indicates mechanical spasm in the muscular system. Hence the absence of that is no more attributable to willpower, as you call it, than to horsepower, begging your pardon. But this muscular spasm you speak of, is not that in a degree more or less invariable in these cases? Assuredly so, Mr. Purser. How then, my good sir, do you account for its absence in this instance? Mr. Purser, it is clear that your sense of the singularity in this matter equals not mine. You account for it by what you call willpower, a term not yet included in the lexicon of science. For me, I do not with my present knowledge pretend to account for it at all. Even should one assume the hypothesis that at the first touch of the halyards the action of Billy's heart, intensified by extraordinary emotion at its climax, abruptly stopped, much like a watch when in carelessly winding it up you strain at the finish, thus snapping the chain, even under that hypothesis how account for the phenomenon that followed? You admit, then, that the absence of spasmodic movement was phenomenal. It was phenomenal, Mr. Purser, in the sense that it was an appearance, the cause of which is not immediately to be assigned. But tell me, my dear sir, pertinaciously continued the other, was the man's death effected by the halter, or was it a species of euthanasia? Euthanasia, Mr. Purser, is something like your willpower. I doubt its authenticity as a scientific term, begging your pardon again. It is at once imaginative and metaphysical, in short, Greek. But, abruptly changing his tone, there is a case in the sick bay that I do not care to leave to my assistants. Beg your pardon, but excuse me. And rising from the mess, he formally withdrew. Chapter 23 The silence at the moment of execution, and for a moment or two continuing thereafter, but emphasized by the regular wash of the sea against the hull, or the flutter of a sail caused by the helmsman's eyes being tempted astray, this emphasized silence was gradually disturbed by a sound not easily to be verbally rendered. Whoever has heard the freshet wave of a torrent suddenly swelled by pouring showers in tropical mountains, showers not shared by the plain, whoever has heard the first muffled murmur of its sloping advance through precipitous woods may form some conception of the sound now heard. The seeming remoteness of its source was because of its murmurous indistinctness, since it came from close by, even from the men massed on the ship's open deck. Being inarticulate, it was dubious in significance further than it seemed to indicate some capricious revulsion of thought or feeling such as mobs ashore are liable to, in the present instance possibly implying a sullen revocation on the men's part of their involuntary echoing of Billy's benediction. 
But ere the murmur had time to wax into clamor, it was met by a strategic command, the more telling that it came with abrupt unexpectedness. Pipe down the starboard watch, boatswain, and see that they go. Shrill as the shriek of the seahawk, the whistles of the boatswain and his mates pierced that ominous low sound, dissipating it. And yielding to the mechanism of discipline, the throng was thinned by one half. For the remainder, most of them were set to temporary employments connected with trimming the yards and so forth, business readily to be found upon occasion by any officer of the deck. Now each proceeding that follows a mortal sentence pronounced at sea by a drumhead court is characterized by promptitude not perceptibly merging into hurry, though bordering that. The hammock, the one which had been Billy's bed when alive, having already been ballasted with shot and otherwise prepared to serve for his canvas coffin, the last office of the sea undertakers, the sailmaker's mates, was now speedily completed. When everything was in readiness, a second call for all hands, made necessary by the strategic movement before mentioned, was sounded, and now to witness burial. The details of this closing formality it needs not to give, but when the tilted plank let slide its freight into the sea, a second strange human murmur was heard, blended now with another inarticulate sound proceeding from certain larger seafowl who, their attention having been attracted by the peculiar commotion in the water resulting from the heavy sloped dive of the shotted hammock into the sea, flew screaming to the spot. So near the hull did they come that the strider or bony creak of their gaunt, double-jointed pinions was audible. As the ship under light airs passed on, leaving the burial spot astern, they still kept circling it low down with the moving shadow of their outstretched wings and the croaked requiem of their cries. Upon sailors as superstitious as those of the age preceding ours, man-of-war's men, too, who had just beheld the prodigy of repose in the form suspended in air and now foundering in the deeps, to such mariners the action of the sea-fowl, though dictated by mere animal greed for prey, was big with no prosaic significance. An uncertain movement began among them, in which some encroachment was made. It was tolerated but for a moment for suddenly the drum beat to quarters, which familiar sound happening at least twice every day had upon the present occasion a signal peremptoriness in it. True martial discipline long continued superinduces an average man a sort of impulse of docility whose operation at the official tone of command much resembles in its promptitude the effect of an instinct. The drum beat dissolved the multitude, distributing most of them along the batteries of the two covered gun decks. There, as wont, the gun crews stood by their respective cannon erect and silent. In due course the first officer, sword under arm and standing in his place on the quarter-deck, formally received the successive reports of the sordid lieutenants commanding the sections of batteries below, the last of which reports being made, the summed report he delivered with the customary salute to the commander. All this occupied time which in the present case was the object of beating to quarters at an hour prior to the customary one. That such variance from usage was authorized by an officer like Captain Veer, a martinet as some deemed him, was evidence of the necessity for unusual action implied in what he deemed to be temporarily the mood of his men. With mankind, he would say, forms, measured forms, are everything, and that is the import couched in the story of Orpheus with his leer spellbinding the wild denizens of the woods, and this he once applied to the disruption of forms going on across the channel and the consequences thereof. At this unwanted muster, at quarters all proceeded as at the regular hour. The band on the quarter-deck played a sacred air, after which the chaplain went through the customary morning service. 
That done, the drum beat the retreat, and toned by music and religious rites subserving the discipline and purpose of war, the men in their wonted orderly manner dispersed to the places allotted them when not at the guns. And now it was full day. The fleece of low-hanging vapor had vanished, licked up by the sun that late had so glorified it. And the circumambient air and the clearness of its serenity was like smooth white marble in the polished block not yet removed from the marble dealer's yard. Chapter 24 The symmetry of form attainable in pure fiction cannot so readily be achieved in a narration essentially having less to do with fable than with fact. Truth uncompromisingly told will always have its ragged edges. Hence the conclusion of such a narration is apt to be less finished than an architectural finial. How it fared with the handsome sailor during the year of the great mutiny has been faithfully given. But though properly the story ends with his life, something in way of sequel will not be amiss. Three brief chapters will suffice. In the general rechristening under the directory of the craft originally forming the navy of the French monarchy, the St. Louis line of battleship was named the Atiste. Such a name, like some other substituted ones in the revolutionary fleet, while proclaiming the infidel audacity of the ruling power, was yet, though not so intended to be, the aptest name, if one consider it, ever given to a warship, far more so indeed than the Devastation, the Erebus, the Hell, and similar names bestowed upon fighting ships. On the return passage to the English fleet, from the detached crews during which occurred the events already recorded, the Indomitable fell in with the Atheist. An engagement ensued, during which Captain Veer, in the act of putting his ship alongside the enemy with a view of throwing his borders across the bulwarks, was hit by a musket ball from a portal of the enemy's main cabin. More than disabled, he dropped to the deck and was carried below to the same cockpit where some of his men already lay. The senior lieutenant took command. Under him the enemy was finally captured, and though much crippled, was by rare good fortune successfully taken into Gibraltar, an English port not very distant from the scene of the fight. There Captain Veer, with the rest of the wounded, was put ashore. He lingered for some days, but the end came. Unhappily, he was cut off too early for the Nile and Trafalgar. The spirit that, spite its philosophic austerity, may yet have indulged in the most secret of all passions, ambition, never attained to the fullness of fame. Not long before death, while lying under the influence of that magical drug which, soothing the physical frame, mysteriously operates on the subtler elements in a man, he was heard to murmur words inexplicable to his attendants. Billy Bud, Billy Bud. That these were not the accents of remorse would seem clear from what the attendant said to the indomitable senior officer of Marines, who, as the most reluctant to condemn of the members of the drumhead court, too well knew, though here he kept the knowledge to himself, who Billy Bud was. Chapter 25 Some few weeks after the execution, among other matters under the head of News from the Mediterranean, there appeared in a naval chronicle of the time, an authorized weekly publication, an account of the affair. It was doubtless for the most part written in good faith, though the medium, partly rumor, through which the facts must have reached the writer, served to deflect and in part falsify them. Because it appeared in a publication now long ago superannuated and forgotten, and is all that hitherto has stood on human record to attest what manner of men respectively were John Claggart and Billy Budd, it is here reproduced. 
On the 10th of the last month, a deplorable occurrence took place on board HMS Indomitable. John Claggart, the ship's master-at-arms, discovering that some sort of plot was incipient among an inferior section of the ship's company, and that the ringleader was one William Budd, he, Claggart, in the act of arraigning the man before the captain, was vindictively stabbed to the heart by the suddenly drawn sheath-knife of Budd. The deed and the implement employed sufficiently suggest that though mustered into the service under an English name, the assassin was no Englishman, but one of those aliens adopting an English cognomen whom the present extraordinary necessities of the service have caused to be admitted into it in considerable numbers. The enormity of the crime and the extreme depravity of the criminal appear the greater in view of the character of the victim, a middle-aged man, respectable and discreet, belonging to that minor official grade, the petty officers, upon whom, as none know better than the commissioned gentleman, the efficiency of His Majesty's Navy so largely depends. His function was a responsible one, at once onerous and thankless, and his fidelity in it the greater because of his strong patriotic impulse. In this instance, as in so many other instances in these days, the character of the unfortunate man signally refutes, if refutation were needed, that peevish saying attributed to Dr. Johnson that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. The criminal paid the penalty of his crime. The promptitude of the punishment has proved salutary. Nothing amiss is now apprehended aboard HMS Indomitable. Chapter 26 Everything is, for a season, remarkable in navies. Any tangible object associated with some striking incident of the service is converted into a monument. The spar from which the four topmen was suspended was for some few years kept trace of by the blue jackets. Then knowledge followed it from ship to dockyard and again from dockyard to ship, still pursuing it even when at last reduced to a mere dockyard boom. To them, a chip of it was as a piece of the cross. Ignorant though they were of the real facts of the happening, and not thinking but that the penalty was unavoidably inflicted from the naval point of view, for all that they instinctively felt that Billy was a sort of man as incapable of mutiny as of willful murder. They recalled the fresh young image of the handsome sailor, that face never deformed by a sneer or subtler vile freak of the heart within. This impression of him was doubtless deepened by the fact that he was gone, and in a measure mysteriously gone. On the gun-decks of the Indomitable, the general estimate of his nature and its unconscious simplicity eventually found rude utterance from another foretopman, one of his own watch, gifted, as some sailors are, with an artless poetic temperament. The tarry hands made some lines, which, after circulating among the shipboard crew for a while, finally got rudely printed at Portsmouth as a ballad. The title given to it was The Sailors. Billy in the Darbies Good of the chaplain to enter Lone Bay, and down on his marrow bones here and pray. For the like's just a me, Billy Bud, but look, through the port comes the moonshine astray. It tips the guard's cutlass and silvers this nook, but twill die in the dawning of Billy's last day. A jewel block they'll make of me tomorrow, pennant pearl from the yard arm end. Like the eardrop I gave to Bristol Molly, Oh, tis me, not the sentence they'll suspend. Aye, aye, all is up, and I must up too. Early in the morning, aloft from alow. On an empty stomach, now, never it would do. They'll give me a nibble, bit o' biscuit, ere I go. 
Sure, a messmate will reach me the last parting cup, but turning heads away from the hoist and the belay, heaven knows who will have the running of me up. No pipe to those halyards, but aren't it all sham? A blur's in my eyes, it is dreaming that I am. A hatchet to my panzer, all adrift to go? The drum-roll to grog, and Billy never know? But Donald he has promised to stand by the plank, so I'll shake a friendly hand ere I sink. But no, it is dead then I'll be, come to think. I remember Taff the Welshman when he sank, in his cheek it was like the budding pink. But me, they'll lash me in hammock, drop me deep. Fathoms down, fathoms down, how I'll dream fast asleep. I feel it stealing now. Sentry, are you there? Just ease these darbies at the wrist, and roll me over fair. I am sleepy, and the oozy weeds about me twist. End of section 10. Recording by Scientific Methodist. End of Billy Budd by Herman Melville.